Well, today's sermon begins not with me, but with you. Not in monologue, but in dialogue, in some conversation among us friends. If you will, turn to someone nearby. Turn to someone nearby and share with him or her where you were on the morning of September 11th, 2001. Where were you on the morning of September 11th, 2001, and how did you learn the news of the terrorist attacks on the United States? Well, take about a minute to do this. If you're really brave, talk to someone that you don't know very well. Are you ready? On your mark, get set, go. So you had a TV with you? All right. Take another few seconds and wrap up your conversations. But it sounds like we've had some good conversation, and that's good. We're going to return to this topic in just a minute. Friends, at the heart of the Bible is a book, a glorious book. It's often neglected, overlooked, and sometimes even disdained. But to those who have the courage to face it and to read it with an open heart and mind, it offers precious wisdom, valuable insight, and profound comfort for the inevitable times of sorrow in our lives. That book is the book of Job, and it's named after its protagonist, Job was a man of great wealth and status. He owned land and livestock and had servants for everything. He had a sterling reputation. He was blameless and upright, a man who feared God and shunned evil. He was a family man with a wife and ten grown children, seven sons and three daughters, all of whom loved and cared for each other. The Bible gives Job the lofty title, of the greatest man in the East. But one day, Job has a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. That day begins like any other with no sign of significance, but before he can finish his breakfast, Job loses his entire estate, all of his wealth, every servant, even his own children. In a series of unfortunate events happening in quick succession, Everything goes up in smoke. In the blink of an eye, Job, who had everything, loses everything. Can you imagine what Job experienced that day? Well, I think you can. I think you can indeed imagine what Job experienced that day because in some way, you had the same experience on September 11th, 2001. In some way, you had the same experience on that fateful morning, the day the world changed. The question has become famous. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? Let's go to that date 
8.46 a.m., a messenger arrives. Maybe for you it was NBC's Katie Couric or CNN's John Lynn. The messenger gives you this piece of news. An airplane has collided with one of the towers of the World Trade Center. The airplane is full of people who, when they kissed their wives goodbye that morning, had no idea it would be the last time they do. At this point, there is still some confusion as to whether the event is intentional or accidental, but one thing is for sure, this is a calamity. Major loss of property, major loss of life. And then, 9.03 a.m., while the first messenger is still speaking, a second messenger arrives. Another airplane has hit the south tower of the World Trade Center. The airplane is full of people who, when they kissed their husbands goodbye that morning, had no idea it would be the last time they do. Look at verse 16. It says, fire fell from the sky. And maybe you even watched it as it happened, fire falling from the sky and slamming into the World Trade Center. And the question of whether the event is intentional or accidental now has an answer, and it's the answer that none of us want to have. Look at verses 15 and 17. Verse 15, it was those Sabaean terrorists. Verse 17, it's those Chaldean raiders. And then before we can even catch our breath, 9.37 a.m., while the second messenger is still speaking, another messenger barges in and plows you down with news from Washington, D.C. A third airplane, a third target. The airplane is full of people who, when they kissed their children goodbye that morning, had no idea it would be the last time they do. This time the target is the Pentagon. And where you should see the southeast face of the building, you now see only a gaping hole and a dark void and billows of fire and smoke. Finally, 9.59 a.m., while the third messenger is still speaking, yet another messenger enters and takes you back to New York City. Your sons and daughters were working that morning. Your sons and daughters were at their desks, glancing at that stock report, priming themselves to make that first trade of the day, your sons and daughters were pulling fire hoses up the stairs, tending to the wounded and dying, bravely searching for survivors, when suddenly, look at verse 19. A mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. The house collapsed on your sons and daughters, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Can you imagine what Job experienced that day? Of course you can, because in some way you had the same experience that tragic morning, the day the world changed, what we experienced on September 11th, 2001, Job experienced on September 11th, 2001 BC. And of course, that's just a creative way of paraphrasing the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1.9, there is nothing new under the sun. It has all been seen before and it will all be seen again. What we experienced on September 11th, 2001, Job experienced on September 11th, 2001 BC. And friends, that's why this message is timely. 
This message suits the moment. It comes at just the right time, and it's not because the anniversary of September 11th is just around the corner. It's because there is nothing new under the sun. You may think that September 11th was 17 years ago, but it wasn't. September 11th happens every single day. September 11th happens every single day because sorrow and suffering, tragedy and loss happen every single day. And that's the first point in your sermon notes if you're tracking along. September 11th happens every single day. Now, there may not be a September 11th event each day in the life of a nation, but certainly each day there's a September 11th event in the life of some person. And I know this. I know this to be true because I am one of your pastors. I know your stories. I know your struggles. I know the sorrows that you bear, the situations that you face. I know that there is a broken heart in every single pew. If you don't believe that September 11th happens each day, just ask Patty Daniel, whose son was diagnosed with cancer at eight years old. Ask Pam Richardson, whose husband is slowly dying of a neurological disease. Ask the Hawkins family, whose youngest member just last week died as she was born. Oh, friends, my sincere wish for each and every one of you is that the date would always be September 10th. My wish is that you would never have to suffer any sort of pain, not even a paper cut, let alone true heartbreak or devastating loss. My wish for each and every one of you is that the date would always be September 10th. But in my heart, I think my wish is in vain because I know the reality of living in a fallen world is that suffering will eventually come to us all. And here's the thing. This is the crux of the matter. Suffering can either make us bitter or it can make us better, but it cannot do both. And that's the second point in your sermon notes. Suffering can either make us bitter or it can make us better. You know, some people are embittered by their suffering. They become hardened and angry and morose, cynical, sarcastic. And yet other people are actually ennobled by their suffering. They become stronger and sweeter, wiser and kinder. Suffering makes them more patient more compassionate, more generous with others. Suffering gives them greater clarity, sharper focus, wider perspective in life. Truly, truly, I say unto you, suffering can either make us bitter or it can make us better, but it cannot do both. And so, if suffering comes to us all, and if suffering can either make us bitter or better, then the question is, what do we do? What can we do to become not bitter, but better? If suffering eventually comes to us all, why not be prepared for it? Why not help our future selves by having at least some idea from Holy Scripture about how to handle suffering faithfully and well? You know, when suffering comes into our lives, it is so common 
to ask the question, why? Why me? Why now? Why this? Oftentimes, it's the first question out of our mouths. Why? And that's a good question. But I think an even better question to ask is what? When sorrow comes into our lives, maybe the best question to ask is not why. Maybe the best question to ask is what? What do I do now to help me in this circumstance? What is a godly response to tragedy? Friends, that's what this sermon is about. It's not about September 11th. It's not about suffering and hardship per se. This sermon is about choices. It's about the choices that all of us have in the midst of our suffering and our hardship. As people of God, as Christians, how can we handle suffering faithfully and well? That is the question, my friends, and in the person of Job, we find an answer. As people of God, as Christians, we can look to this biblical hero as one who responds to tragedy in a godly way. He can be our shining example. And so let's look at what he does. What does Job do? First, let's go to verse 20. The first thing that Job does is this. Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. In the Bible, these two acts are acts of deep emotion, deep feeling. Tearing one's robe is a sign of anger and anguish. Shaving one's head is an act of sorrow and mourning. And here again, there is nothing new under the sun. When I was in high school, I played varsity soccer. And one year, my junior year, right after tryouts were over, everyone on the team awoke to some tragic news. Michael, one of the sophomores, had been killed in a car accident. He had been out the night before celebrating the fact that he had made the team But the celebration went awry. And so by the time the sun came up on the next day, he had died. As a sophomore in high school, a life cut short. Well, shortly thereafter, a team meeting was called for all the players at the house of one of our teammates. And in that meeting, everyone on the team shaved his head. Together, Over 20 teenage boys shaved their heads as a sign of sorrow and solidarity. And keep in mind that this is a public school, not a private school, not a parochial school, not a Christian school. To my knowledge, none of us had read the book of Job, and yet all of us shaved our heads naturally, instinctively. Job does the same. He tears his robe and shaves his head, which are acts of deep emotion. Job vents his anguish and grief. He freely expresses his feelings. Friends, all of us have feelings, okay? Even the men have feelings. Now, some of you wives in the room look surprised, but listen to me, I'm telling you the truth. All of us have feelings, and feelings are meant to be felt. Feelings are meant to be expressed in healthy ways. Now, to be sure, some people are very much in tune with their feelings, while others are not. 
Some people express their feelings easily while others do not, but all of us have feelings. That's how God created us. And in times of tragedy, it is crucial to express our feelings freely and in healthy ways. We can be sure of this, suppressing our feelings is both an exercise in futility, because our feelings will come out maybe in ways that we don't realize, and suppressing our feelings is a recipe for disaster. Denying our pain, living in denial, avoiding it, suppressing it, stuffing it down inside, never to be seen again, that's a recipe for disaster. Did you know that over 20 million Americans are addicted to some illicit drug? And I think that's a really conservative estimate. I would not be surprised if it's really three to five times that figure. Every day, 100 people die of a drug overdose. The dramatic rise of opioids, painkillers, is a well-documented fact and has become a topic of, of national conversation. Alcoholism is believed to affect over 20 million Americans, though it may affect more. It's hard to tell because of the legality of the substance. Whichever way you slice it, addiction is a grave problem in our world. And the caricature of an addict is a person who is internally weak or morally lax, and yet Nothing could be farther from the truth. Often, addiction doesn't begin with internal weakness or moral laxity. Addiction begins with pain. It's really very simple. A person is feeling great pain, emotional pain, but doesn't know what to do with it, doesn't know how to handle it, doesn't know how to process those feelings. And so he or she becomes focused on simply easing the pain, escaping the pain, numbing oneself to it. You can do this with drugs, with alcohol, with sex, with work, with gambling, gaming, shopping, a variety of other things. It's really a wonder that there aren't more people addicted to something. The epidemic of addiction is really an epidemic of pain. Addiction often begins with pain, and so the lesson that we can take is this. In times of tragedy or sorrow, face your pain squarely, bravely. Vent your feelings. Express them to someone who is emotionally safe and trustworthy. For you, that might be a friend or a relative. That might be a licensed professional counselor. That might be a member of the clergy. And whether you feel anger or guilt or sadness, Process those emotions in a healthy, constructive way. For you, that might be exercise. Maybe you should go for a walk or lift weights. That might be engaging in something creative, writing poetry or making pottery or filling up your journal. That may be channeling your feelings into something redemptive, like volunteering at the children's hospital. Don't forget that Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD, was begun by mothers in pain, mothers who wanted to do something redemptive with their experience, and so they did. Whatever you do, my friends, face your pain, feel your feelings, and process them in healthy, constructive, even redemptive ways. 
That's the first thing that Job does. The second thing that Job does is astounding, and it's astounding because of the relative um, rareness of it. Job goes to God. He turns to God, not away from God, even after suffering this immense hardship. He runs into God's arms. Look at verse 21. Job fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will return. The Lord has given, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. My goodness. In the blink of an eye, Job loses all of his wealth. His sheep, his camels, his oxen, his servants, even his family. And yet in the midst of unspeakable tragedy, Job is somehow able to affirm his faith in the sovereignty of God, to state his trust in the goodness of God, and to do on this morning what he has done every other morning, worship God. You know, it is often difficult for someone like me, someone who is sinful and fallible, to do these things even on a good day, even on my best day. But Job affirms his faith in the sovereignty of God, states his trust in the goodness of God, and worships the God of his life on the day that life is reduced to ashes. When suffering comes into our lives, some people turn their back on God. Sadly, I have seen it, whether it's in one dramatic moment when they shake their fist and walk away, or whether it's a slow, quiet process of gradually drifting away, some people turn their back on God. Some people don't turn their back on God per se, but they blame God for their suffering. And I count myself among this number. If I want to be honest, I have to say that I preach to myself because I sometimes blame God and charge God with wrongdoing when things don't go my way. In my own moments of great sorrow, I have heard my heart say within me, God, you're not in control, are you? You're not sovereign. You're not loving. You're not wise. Otherwise, none of this would have ever happened to me. God, you have no idea what you're doing. Clearly, you're asleep at the wheel, and so I'm getting out of this car, and I'm hitching a ride with someone else. Some people blame God for their suffering, but not Job. In verse 22, it says, In all these things, Job sinned not, by charging God with wrongdoing. Many of you will know the name John Newton. John Newton lived in England in the 18th and 19th centuries. He wrote several famous hymns, including Amazing Grace, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken. He was an abolitionist, and he was a pastor, a minister in the Anglican Church. Well, one day, a member of his church came to him with a question. That person said that he had faithfully prayed, that he had gone to God faithfully, but that he could not feel God's presence and that he saw no change in his life circumstances. And so the church member wondered, what use is it to go to God? What good 
does it do to go to God? Well, John Newton thought, and he very astutely replied, if we seem to get no good by drawing near to God, we may be sure to get no good by keeping away from him. Friends, when suffering comes into your life, draw near to God. Do what Job did. Turn to God, not away. Run into God's arms. Go directly to his throne of grace where we might receive help in our time of need. Whatever you do, don't let go of God because God is not letting go of you. That's the answer to the final point in your sermon notes. Don't let go of God because God is not letting go of you. When I was in seminary, I was introduced to this book. It's called A Grace Disguised by Dr. Jerry Sitzer, a professor at Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. I was given this book by one of his former students, a person who Dr. Sitzer actually thanks in his introduction. I haven't always been successful at it, but I try to read this book once a year. A Grace Disguised is the story of Dr. Sitzer's own experience of loss. In a single car accident, he lost his mother, his wife, and his youngest daughter. Three generations of women gone in an instant. And in the book, he reflects on this experience and on the years since that loss, and he gives us some valuable, hard-won pieces of wisdom. This is what he says, I discovered that I had the power to choose the direction my life would take, and I decided to allow myself to be transformed by my suffering rather than to think that I could somehow avoid it. And when I did, I discovered that the experience of loss does not have to be the defining moment of our lives. Instead, it can be our response to loss. It's not what happens to us that matters so much as what happens in us. Thank you, Dr. Sitzer. Sisters and brothers in Christ, I hope I hope that in your life the date always shows September 10th. But should the page ever turn and the date change, let your suffering make you not bitter, but better. Let it make you stronger, sweeter, wiser, kinder. Let it make you more patient, more prayerful, more faithful, miles and miles closer to God than you were before. Face your pain squarely, bravely, vent your feelings freely, and process your grief in healthy, constructive, even redemptive ways. Through things like prayer and Bible study, worship and fellowship, turn to God, not away from God, run into God's strong arms, and once you're there, don't let go. Don't let go because God most assuredly is not letting go of you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.